Brothers and sisters, it's been said that by one of my mentors early in ministry that hell on earth is a church meeting in which the Holy Spirit has withdrawn himself. So let us pray. Grant us, O Lord, the presence of your Holy Spirit in what we do, say, and think this evening may, in the final analysis, glorify our Son, Jesus Christ. Strengthen the faithful around the careless, restore the penitents. Grant us all things necessary for our common life, and bring us to be of one heart and mind beneath the cross of thy Son, and within your holy church. And it is in his name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. 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 Joe and Keith Sloan, and Keith Sloan is with us, and I appreciate very much your willingness uh, to be here, Keith. Thank you so much. I enjoyed joined Keith a couple of weeks ago with several other of the Birmingham area uh, rectors, and we talked about the upcoming general convention uh, and uh, this coming up this summer, and, and, and Keith encouraged uh, us to prepare, to begin to prepare our people for some of the things that will be coming out of General Convention in terms of various and sundry resolutions, uh, particularly as it deals with, with human sexuality issues. And so with that in mind, I've invited the Reverend Dr. Kendall Harmon, who is with us uh, for the Lynchon Preaching Series. Uh, many of you I know heard him preach uh, uh, today and he will be with us tomorrow also, but I invited him to address the vestry and the wardens uh, and the staff uh, and anyone else that I saw who asked me if I would be able to come, and I said, you know, absolutely. Uh, he was uh, with us uh, this morning at Sunrise Centers, and I, uh, that, that the name of my Bible study to teach on Thursday morning, and gosh, I think about 75% of you guys here, so it's nice to have you here. But Kendall did, just very briefly, Kendall did his undergraduate work at at Bowdoin College in Maine, he did his uh, Master of Divinity at Trinity in Ambridge and also Vancouver. He did his PhD at Oxford. He is the canon theologian of the Diocese of South Carolina. He's also the editor of Anglican Digest, and he's he's the uh, mastermind, if you would, uh, behind the blog Titus 1-9 that receives an amazing uh, amount of hits per month. How many hits per month? Do you uh, you, I don't. I'm not going to say on the record. <laughs> I'm really not. But for years, Kendall has been in dialogue with theologians and prelates all over the Anglican communion. He knows the situation. He kind of knows uh, what what people are thinking and doing. Uh, and he is presently uh, committed to a ministry within the Episcopal Church. As I say, he was with Sunrise Centers this morning. And we did uh, kind of the format that we did this morning was kind of a, a question and answer series. It seemed to work pretty well, so we thought we would try that uh, tonight also. So I plan to ask uh, Kendall a series of questions, let him answer, and I would like to hold our time uh, to our time together that will go no later than seven o'clock, and then uh, Kia would certainly uh, give you an opportunity to end to, to make any comment that you would like to make uh, in. And I also would like to make uh, would like to make a closing comment. Also, some things that I perceive uh, here in my relationship with Keith and and in the diocese. So, having said all of that, I am going to step out of the way now, Kendall, and let you step up to the podium if you want, or you can walk around and pace. How do you like to do it? I think I'll begin with some questions. If you sunrise centers hanging there with it, you've heard me ask this before, and he's answered. So, 
but just very briefly, Kendall, tell us about your family. Were you brought up in a family of strong Christian faith? No, I grew up in a non-Christian family. I was an agnostic in secondary school and had a pretty dramatic conversion the summer before going to college. Married, uh, my wife is taller and better looking than I am. Like most clergy, I'm married up. For those of you who know uh, lives of clergy, I have three children, girl, boy, girl. Oldest is a first-year student in seminary in Vancouver, Canada, at Regent College. Our son's a junior at Vanderbilt, and our youngest, who's a girl, our daughter, is a freshman at Furman. Is there a time in your life, Kendall, that you can point to as a time when you made a decision for a Christ? Briefly, I uh, was a very poorly formed agnostic in high school, and uh, two things happened that shook up my world. One was I read Moby Dick in detail and had to keep a diary and was haunted by Melville's portrayal of the problem of evil. And then the Glee Club from the Lawrenceville School, where I was a student, won a grant to represent the United States behind the Iron Curtain in 1977. And as part of that trip, we went to Auschwitz. And uh, that was really devastating because I had no way uh, to... Auschwitz, when you see it up front, is a very searing experience. I had no way to handle it. And so that sent me into crisis, and I met a girl who was a very strong Christian, and she wouldn't let me go unless I faced into the question of who Jesus was. And I had a pretty dramatic conversion before college. When did you first sense a call to ordain ministry? <laughs> this is a different question for me. When I, when I was in college as an undergraduate, it, it's, it simply took these two forms. One is, what do you like to do? I was a chemistry major, almost did a double in economics, but I started liking uh, Christian stuff. I was the president of the college Christian fellowship, and the more I did it, the more I liked it, and the more I liked it, the more I got invited to do other things. The other thing is, I liked getting involved in church, and I was involved in an Episcopal church about 25 minutes from my college campus, one way, where I went with some friends, and uh, I got my courage up and I asked the rector if I could preach, knowing that he would say no, and he said it was a great idea. <laughs> and uh, I, I read Spurgeon, and one of the things he says, I mean, it's very practical, but essentially he says, if you think you're called, uh, preach to the people of God and see how they respond. And it, it actually is quite important. If you, can't, if you don't have the lung power to finish sentences, one of the things Spurgeon says, you're probably not called to be in parish ministry, because if you can't finish sentences, it was an awful sermon. You can't have a copy. <laughs> but uh, but the, the people were blessed, and the rector was encouraging, and that's, that sort of started the process. I see. Now, how old were you when you are, were ordained? 27. Straight, straight, I mean, five years of graduate school and straight into ordained ministry. As you reflect back on your discernment process, do you remember any well, there was this strange haberdasher guy from Orangeburg, and uh, he and I went through the, believe it or not, in South Carolina we have a, a weekend of discernment for the, the committee on ministry, called the Commission on Ministry, and Frank and I were on the same weekend at the same time. It was, a, it was an intimidating experience, but the two of us went through together. So seems like a land far away and a long time ago. Well, I was also intimidated. <laughs> because I was with this guy who was, uh, who was an obvious scholar, and, uh, and 
I was not a scholar, so I, I, as I remember, I went in after Kendall. He was going first. The questions, he would ask me to answer the same questions. And so, but anyway, by God's grace, we made it through there. Yeah. You know, you're now a canon theologian, that's in South Carolina. What in the world is a canon theologian? <laughs> Well, some people make it sound like I get shot out of a cannon, and that's not what I... I, Basically, the chief theological advisor to the bishop, the clergy, the parishes, and the ministries of the diocese, which takes the form that it depends on the diocese and what comes up in terms of what you actually do. It involves a lot of theological wrestling. One of the things I said this morning is clergy have a lot of theological questions. They also have no one to talk to about them. I was once, believe it or not, for those of you who know Larry Gibson, this is a funny story, he interviewed me for a job here. We got in a two-hour theological fight, which ended with a fight over Calvin's Institutes, and he called me back 30 minutes later with the reference that proved that he was right and I was wrong, which I, which I really appreciated, but that's not why I tell you the story. What, what was amazing to me uh, from a cathedral dean as a young ordained person was, he said, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate uh, that talk that we had for two hours. And I was thinking, boy, who is this guy? Because he said, he went on to say that was the first theological discussion he'd had with another clergyman in over a year. And he, it was very heartfelt. He loved theology and he loved to talk theology. He just could never do it. So I do a lot of that kind of stuff. And I do courses for parishes. Uh, C.S. Lewis and an introduction to Christian apologetics is one of the recent ones. Things like that. Tell us briefly then about your ministry. Well, the the digest is, uh, it's either on people's coffee table or it's in their restroom. And people read it uh, slowly, but it has an incredible circulation. One of the most widely read publications in the communion and my job essentially is to keep it centered, uh, to keep it varied, and uh, to try to provide material that encourages people in what you might call mere Christianity, to quote C.S. Lewis. And it is a, a very difficult job because the Episcopal Church uh, is struggling in the area of writing stuff that's actually interesting to read. No, way more things I can use. In fact, one of my editorial policies I had to come up with is I, I am not going to contact you to tell you that I'm not going to use your stuff. Because I ran into so many people. First they sent it, then they called and sent constant follow-ups until they figured out whether I was going to use it or not. And I had so many people doing that, I couldn't even think straight. So I will only contact people if I'm going to use it which made it easier. But yes, I have a lot of people that send stuff. And unfortunately, 90% of it is not good. As as far as publication, it's it's not that it's bad. It's just very, very maintenance-oriented and ordinary. This is, the liturgical color is green. This is the apse. We appreciate people that give money to St. Swithin's. I mean, that's not uh, heretical, but it, it doesn't promote any sort of gospel energy, if I can use that kind of language.
So if it's in Anglican Digest, we can rest assured that you've given your I wouldn't say that. I certainly don't agree with everything that ends up in there. But, but it's Anglican. It, it, it should be centered in the center of the faith. Kendall, how would you presently describe Anglicanism in North America? That's a big question. I know it, and I expect a big answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's nice that you've raised the bar, brother. Uh, I will say a few things about this. You may want to ask follow-up questions. You can probably tell by my training, I'm an ideas person and a history of ideas person and kind of a big picture person. So I'm going to try to get at some of this uh, from the perspective of sort of a larger picture. And I would say uh, this about the Episcopal Church. First of all, in a communion of 70 to 80 million Anglicans worldwide, we're the most out of step with the rest of the communion in terms of theologically. We, we could debate that, but, but arguably, the, the one that is engaging culture in such a way that culture gets an awful lot of the attention, but also a lot of the truth, and the gospel gets more lost in the process of trying to make it relevant. Uh, so we are the most enculturated and least gospel-looking communion of the 39 member communions in the Worldwide Anglican Communion. And that has been a process that has been unfolding over a long period of time. It has lots of causes. It has to do with theological education. It has to do with the 1979 Book of Common Prayer that nobody wants to talk about. I know this is a right one pair, so those not, may not be fighting words for you. But the 79 prayer book is not something that I feel was a... a, a an entirely positive introduction in, theologically uh, to our common life. And it sticks out like a sore thumb in the history of all the prayer books in the Anglican Communion. So we started theologically going off the rails, and then in the process of doing that, we went through a series of dramatic decisions having to do with cultural change, which got us a lot of attention and a lot of press, and it eventually led to uh, the issue of at a practical level, there was a lot of experimentation in the Episcopal Church, which a lot of people weren't aware of in other places. We, we really became a, a church of dioceses and a, and a church of individual parishes. In spite of all our rhetoric to the contrary, we are a very congregational church and a very diocesan church, and we have increasingly very little uh, in common in our common life. For those of you who know Anglican documents well, you may know that something called the Lambeth, uh, Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral. It's got four things that it says characterize what Anglicans think are kind of central. The, the creeds, uh, the word of God. Uh, <clears throat> and one of the things it says is the, 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 the bishop uh, locally adapted. And, and of the things that are in there, Basically, we've lost all of them except the bishop. And I know the bishop is here, and I don't mean this about him personally, but one of the tragedies, and the reason I mention this is because you can actually see this, is what is going on in the Episcopal Church right now is bishops are trying to hold their diocese together by the sheer force of their own will. Because it's the only thing left of the four pillars of the quadrilateral to try to hold it together. And, and what you have is you have... Uh, really dramatically tragic events with bishops. Uh, Marriages breaking apart, bishops shooting themselves, bishops getting caught in affairs, 
Uh, multiple bishops retiring way too early. In fact, this, this is an, almost an epidemic right now in the Episcopal Church. And no one is noticing this, but it's very hard to be a bishop because nobody, you and I included, don't have, we don't have the power to hold the church together by the strength of our own will. So it's a, there's, a, there's a, a huge individualism in America that's driven the Episcopal Church into a very individuated set of parishes and dioceses. And what that leads to is a lot of variation in local practice. And so when you had women's ordination, there was variation in local practice. But when you got to the issue of same-sex unions and, and clergy who were involved in same-sex unions, there was enormous variety of practice. And there was a wink-wink, nod-nod perspective at the national level where stuff went on that was never agreed to at a national level at the General Convention. But it went on because local practice became very adapted and also very disconnected from the rest of the church. So what happened was, eventually, one of the clergy that was involved in the same-sex union was eventually going to get nominated for bishop. And, and this was happening while most people in the country didn't realize the Episcopal Church had anyone in most dioceses who was in a same-sex union being ordained. So the reason why 2003 was such a big deal, and, and uh, for those of you who don't know, there were 363 credentialed media at the Minneapolis General Convention in 2003. It was a circus. The second week, the second day, I went across the hallway to the bathroom from the floor of deputies, which is the laity and the clergy side of General Convention, and I never made it to the bathroom because I was surrounded by so many media who wanted to ask me questions. I mean, complete like 25 in a circle. That's the kind of environment it was. But the reason that happened is because all of a sudden, at a sacramental level, something that, that happened that everybody noticed, because bishops are noticed everywhere, right? You ordain a bishop not simply for a diocese, but for the whole church. That's part of our theology. And all of a sudden, the fact that this individualism and enculturation had been going on all over the church got noticed by a lot of people who didn't realize it was happening. And they had no idea uh, that, that this had been going on. And they felt like they had no say in the process that had led to it. And this is crucial. There was no doctrine backing it up. We did something in practice that we never approved doctrinally. So we did something through the back door that we never agreed to think through on the front end. And we were in great disagreement in terms of our doctrine. Uh, so 2003 was a very dramatic event. It caused a, a, a split, not simply in the communion, but also in our own province. And that's what, this leads me to answer your question. Where things are now is essentially three places, I would say. One is, uh, and, and I say this with a, uh, with a heavy heart, the theological traditionalists or conservatives, my own terminology that I prefer, for those of you who know my blog, is reasserters those who, who want to reassert the truth of the Christian faith into a contemporary context, uh, people at Neshota House and Trinity Seminary, people like that, people like myself, uh, South Carolina, I won't speak for Frank, but people like that, uh, for the most part, the best leaders of that group have left the Episcopal Church over the process of the last seven to ten years. And they are now, really for the first time, outside of the Episcopal Church, but nevertheless seeking to be Anglican. That has led to two dynamics, both of which are important. One is, they're no longer in the Episcopal Church, but they still have to function as Anglicans, so they've had to figure out a way to do that. They've done that by linking themselves to other communions in the Anglican Communion, places like Nigeria, 
Rwanda and other places, but they've also had to uh, found a church and try to figure out how to live together. And uh, one of the things I say to my friends who get frustrated with what's going on is, for those of you who've ever started a family or a business or a church, it's hard. <laughs> it's very hard to start anything that has r- real significance and weight. You have to write your own rules. You have to come up with your own modus operandi. And if you're following what's happening, what you're seeing is the conservatives who have left, now that they're out, and their identity was defined in part by what they were against as well as the gospel that they're for, trying to figure out how to live together and, and how they should live has actually been harder than they thought. And they've actually started to divide among themselves. And so one of the current tragedies is the, the, the group that has left looks very American and very Protestant and very chaotic. And that just has to be owned on the front end. Uh, I wish it were different, but they, they, they are having a hard time cohering and working together. And that is a problem, not simply for them, but also for the other conservatives in the Episcopal Church, because they have said, essentially, this is the faithful way to do this, and you need to come join us. And I just need to tell you that uh, in all sorts of ways, I, and I say this with a very sad heart, that it's not attractive. They're really struggling. So that's one side. The other side is, as a result of the success of 2003, a series of changes have come on the back of that. And the conservatives that have left have changed the power structure even more at a national level. And so the people who lead the Episcopal Church are the ones who really believe in the new sexual theology and the new more universalizing theology at a national level. And they are in almost every position of power that matters. And therefore, they are in a position to continue to change the Episcopal Church in, in ways that move it farther away from traditional Anglicanism as far as the rest of the communion is concerned. Notice how I said that. They would argue that their motivation is that they're trying to be Christian and trying to get the gospel to the culture by doing this. They, they believe that they're honoring Christ by doing this. But they're, but they're moving in more and more innovative ways. And uh, I would want to question how Christian those ways are, but they see them as Christian. And so as we approach this general convention, that, that train is not stopping. And this is important for people to realize is uh, the Episcopal Church is not stopping from continuing in the broad theological direction where it's uh, continuing. And what that means is it's not really primarily about sexual morality. It's really about an emphasis on a universal faith and therefore the distinctiveness of Christ and his sacrifice is being lost. There's something in the Episcopal Church, I don't know how well you all know this, called the communion of the unbaptized. Are you familiar with this at all? I, I prefer that language. Some people describe it as open communion, but I don't like open communion because there's another open communion, which is the difference between the Roman Catholics and the more Protestants who have open communion that anybody who's a Christian can come. What I mean by communion of the unbaptized is parishes that, that as a practice, uh, encourage anybody, no matter what their faith, no matter where they are spiritually, to come forward to the altar rail. So if I took you, I won't tell you which parish, but I, th- this is the invitation in one of the Episcopal churches nationally right now. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, I encourage you to come forward uh, to gain strength and consolation as you walk along the way. That's the invitation to communion at an Episcopal church. You notice that the Trinity, in fact, anything even 
Christ-oriented is gone. Now, what you need to know, the reason I bring it up is that that practice, which is A, against historic Christian faith, and B, explicitly against the canons of the Episcopal Church, is incredibly widespread in multiple places in the Episcopal Church. Not simply at a parish level, but in some places at a diocesan level. And the reason I mention that is that's an example of the loss of Christian distinctiveness. I mean, if you, if you have people to a family meal and they don't even have to have a relationship to the family, you're beginning to lose your sense of your identity in terms of what a family is. So that's an example of the kind of thing that's happening more and more. And so this is not simply going to be about uh, same-sex unions, and that gets most of the press, but it's about things like marriage, it's about liturgy, it's about the relationship between Christianity and other faiths, it's about the distinctiveness of the cross, and it's about the communion of the unbaptized. And the train is moving ever more strongly at a leadership level in that direction. And then the other thing that, that is going on in the middle of all that is uh, incredible corporate institutional deterioration. You need to be aware of the fact that the Episcopal Church at a national level is in terrible shape as an institution. This is not being talked about. It's not being owned. Um, it's certainly not something that gets mentioned by most of the national leadership in most of the national settings, but it's a fact. Uh, over the last 10 to 15 years, our average Sunday attendance, these are statistics that people in parish ministry use that they consider meaningful. You all know what I mean by average Sunday attendance. So it's not how many people Cathedral Church of the Advent claims to be on the rolls. But if I took you know, an average Sunday and looked at how many people were actually in worship, that's actually a good meaningful measure of the sort of core of a congregation. We claim right now about 2.2 million uh, members in terms of our membership. That's down from 3.6 million in the late, mid-1960s. But here's the thing that you need to know. Uh, before General Convention 2003, we had about 860,000 average Sunday attendants, and we claimed about 2.4 million members. We now claim 2.2 million members, but what you need to know is our average Sunday attendance is below 780,000. And if you know how parish ministry works, people will tell you that your honest, real situation in parish ministry is your real membership is double the, 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 the amount of people that you have in Sunday morning. So if you have 500 in Sunday morning, your real members that are actually connected in some meaningful ways is about 1,000. So I'm in a parish of about 500, and we have about 200 and some at worship. That would be fairly normal. Which means that if we claim 2.2 million membership and we have 7, 760,000 average Sunday attendance, you know that we don't really have 2.2 million members. That's a hugely padded number. But notice, in the last 10 to 15 years, depending on which statistical measure you want to use, we're down 15 to 20 percent. Now, if you were in a business, if, if you were at a stockholders meeting, annual meeting, there would be questions that would be raised if your business was down 15 to 20 percent in a short period of time. In some dioceses, it's 30%. And these are dioceses, in many cases, where the general population is growing. Kirk Hathaway, who works at the National Church Office, is a statistician. They are, have a website, and I encourage you to go to it. He just made a presentation to Executive Council. If you have time, 
all you have to do to see what I'm talking about is go through the, the presentation that he made to Executive Council. I linked to it on my blog. The statistics are mind-boggling. But what he essentially says is, we are deeply diseased and unhealthy as a group at the level of funerals, at the level of uh, marriages, at the level of adult baptisms, at the level of church schools, at the level of worship attendance. We are in precipitous decline. The only question is the rate at which we are declining. And there is no willingness to really engage us at a serious level. So behind the scenes, what is going on is there is a deterioration of money and there is a deterioration of morale. Already, a few of the smaller dioceses are teetering on the edge of needing probably to merge with bigger dioceses. For those of you who have been following the news, that's already started to happen in Wisconsin. You're going to see it happen in Kansas. Uh, it may happen in other places. That's a result of the kind of weakening uh, that we're seeing. And, and the other thing is that, uh, and this is very sad, is the national leadership feels very threatened by this group of Anglicans that have left the Episcopal Church who are claiming the franchise. So they feel like you're in their town um, and you're claiming the Coke brand, but you work for Pepsi. And so as a result of feeling threatened, they have pursued a policy of aggressive lawsuits at enormous cost in financial and personal terms, but also in an incredibly punitive way toward those involved. Again, this is not being talked about, but the reason for this is they want to make sure to wipe out the threat of the possibility of another Anglican franchise within the American space that actually looks coherent. It was, it's far from clear that it would be coherent, but they want to eliminate that threat before it has a chance, as it were, to get out of the starting gate of the race. And one of the ways to do that is to get involved in punitive action. And when I say punitive action, I want to make sure to put flesh on this. I mean punitive action. Again, this is all behind cloak and dagger and not talked about, but uh, are you aware of the fact that the Episcopal Church issues subpoenas to lay people at their door? Are you aware of the fact that the Episcopal Church, when they sue people, uh, not simply sues them, but goes after every possible asset that they can? One of my friends is in the Diocese of... Uh, Ohio, and he was involved in a lengthy lawsuit with the diocese there, and he lost his building. He came, he's a very godly guy, he came to the settlement with the lawyers in the Episcopal Diocese and handed over the keys to the building, and he thought he was done. He'd been involved in this for years, enormous sums of money involved. And when he looked across the table, uh, the lawyers for the Episcopal Church were looking down, no longer making eye contact with him. And uh, he was informed that they were going after back assets of uh, material that they claimed was theirs after the lawsuit. So having won the lawsuit and having won the building, they were now going after additional assets. One of the Episcopal Church's leading treasurers in the city of El Paso is being sued by the Episcopal Church for fraud. He was in his living room with one of my friends with his wife in tears because, among many other things, if you are an accountant, which is what he is, in a city and you're being sued by fraud, it's not good for business. This is the kind of thing uh, that, that, that's going on behind the scenes. So it is a, it is a very uh, precarious and fluid situation with three different groups. A national leadership group that's got a theological orientation, 
a group of conservatives for the most part who's left and they're sort of people like Frank and I that are the remnant who are still in the Episcopal Church and then an enormous number of people who have varying degrees of awareness of what's going on who are kind of lost like deer in the headlights. One of the amazing things about what's going on is how many clergy are living out the book of Judges in their own ministry right now. They have no idea what to do. Every one of them is adopting their own strategy and they're just trying to make their way in some way, coping in their own local context. And their approach is as varied as their context. In Colorado, this is happening. In Kentucky, this is happening. But one of my friends was talking to me the other day on the phone, and he said, Kendall, why why can't I get any of the clergy on the phone? And I said, they're hiding. And it's true. They don't want to talk to anybody because they feel like they're working for Coke, and Coke has become Pepsi. And that's a very hard thing when you're working for the company that you feel that they've lost their brand identity. And, but, but they are attached to the company and their family is attached to the company in terms of their future. Uh, so it's a very difficult thing because laity and clergy go through it at different levels and the clergy in particular are very lost and in a lot of pain and in a lot of book of judges behavior at a, at a local level. So those are the three groups and that's the lay of the land. And where it goes, far be it from me to predict. I have some ideas, but I would only speak tentatively. But that's where it is right now. Heading into General Convention. Look at that face. (laughs) So, Kendall, what keeps you... It it sounds, I guess, one reaction I have to say, one of the questions I have here is that uh, given the fact that the Episcopal Church is uh, gaining in its momentum for revision, and I've had Captain Jeffrey Shore to tell me personally, uh, to my face, with the one opportunity I had to speak with her for a quick five minutes here while she was in Birmingham, is that she'll admit that the revision is gaining momentum. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I in, in light of that, Sounds like what I was going to ask you: What motivates you to stay within the Episcopal Church? Is that because there's no other place to go, or do you find a legitimate ministry within the Episcopal Church? And that's that's one question. And the second half of that is: Where is your hope, then, in light of this? Well, Frank and I have been friends until this moment, but the questions have (laughs) the questions have gotten too hard. So I'm going to send you all home. No, I'm kidding. Uh, let me say this in answer to the first good question. I, there are two principles to try to hold fast to. One is uh, what I would call evangelical or gospel truth, and the other is Catholic order. And Anglicanism at its best tries to balance those two and hold on to the two of them together. What you have going on right now is, uh, as a result of a, what, what they feel is a loss of evangelical truth, Uh, a number of conservatives have left the Episcopal Church. The difficulty is they've done that at the expense of Catholic order and they are experiencing disorderliness. The Episcopal Church has order, but it is losing, and we could debate the extent of this, or has lost evangelical truth. And so you get these two worlds where uh, you, you want order and you want truth, but if you choose one, you feel like you have to choose one over the other. And what, what, what has to happen is you have to balance those two things in your own context and try to be faithful in your own way. So to answer your question directly for myself, 
I have said, I get asked all the time, I'm sure you probably, my bishop is tired of being asked, but he still answers the question, gets asked everywhere he goes in diocese, are you going to stay in the Episcopal Church? You know, when are you leaving the Episcopal Church? And uh, all I can tell you is, I'm going to stay with my diocese. And we are in a very precarious position because we're under a lot of hostile assault from various parts of the Episcopal Church. But we are trying very hard to stay together as a diocese. We're about 30,000 people. We have 73 to 76 parishes and missions. And we finally lost our, I'm very sorry to say, our largest parish. But the rest of us are still together. And we're trying hard to cohere. So all I can say is, as a body, we are going to try to respond as a body. And if the body feels, say, forced out, I'm just... Uh, speaking hypothetically now, then I would do. I would go with them. I mean, I would. Tr- I would try to stay together with the people. But, but that's where I am. I'm in South Carolina. I'm with the bishop that I'm currently serving with. I'm with my friends. That's not. That's not the context of Church of the Advent, nor my friends in other dioceses and other parishes and other situations. So what you have to do is work it out. And remember Paul's dictum in Romans, let every person be firmly convinced in his own mind. What I said to the prayer breakfast, I will also say to you because it's very important to me. And that is the, the principles to live by. I mean, where we are, brothers and sisters, is we're back in exile. This is a period of judgment in exile. It's happened before. It will happen again. The difficulty is most of us don't know that part of the salvation story. We don't read Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, and we don't know very much about what they have to say. Those are the books, believe it or not, where we need to spend most of our time. If you read Daniel, especially, what you will see is two things happening. One is there are four dimensions of Daniel's life when he's in Babylon. Some things he compromises over for the sake of where he is. He compromises over language, and he compromises over local custom and clothing. Very interesting. But there's other places where he will not budge in his identity as somebody who is a child of Yahweh. Those places are, fascinatingly from my perspective, food, his diet, and worship. And of course, it's worship that ultimately gets him tossed into the lion's den. So what you see Daniel doing is these two things. He is seeking to be faithful for the, to the truth that he's received, on the one hand, and he's differentiating himself from what he feels is false doctrine and false living in the context in which he finds himself. And what we have to do, and all of us will, will find individual and different ways to live this out, is try to live that out faithfully in our own context. What we've done, you probably know this, in South Carolina is we have... As, the, as we feel the National Church has moved farther and farther away from Christian truth, we have felt that we need to move farther and farther away from their move away from the gospel. So we've had to do more and more and more differentiation to keep our gospel identity. That's the, we're trying to live into what Daniel is saying. We're finding that increasingly difficult. Now, where is my hope? Well, um, this is, I don't know how you'll feel about this, but uh, Jeremiah is one of the most hopeful books in the Bible. In fact, one of the most famous Bible verses about hope, which is on uh, posters and on people's walls and sometimes even in their notebooks is one of their favorite verse, is actually from Jeremiah and it's from the 29th chapter. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's a remarkable 
a verse of scripture and people love it, but what they fail to remember sometimes, at least I feel they do, is where it comes. That is something that Jeremiah says to the people of God in exile. And here's the thing uh, that, that is crucial about that verse, and I'm, I'm answering your question about hope, I promise. The difficulty when you're in the midst of a period of loss, and this is true of all grief, the difficulty with grief, it took me a while to fully understand this at, par- at pastoral level. Grief is brutal always, but the bigger the grief, the more brutal it is, because it feels like it has no edges. It feels like it has no end. You can't get your arms around it in any kind of a meaningful way. And, and so you have to realize, I mean, think of, think of Jeremiah. They lost their worship identity. They, they lost their main worship place, the temple. They lost their country. I mean, that, you talk about loss. That's a lot of loss. And so what you feel as a result of a loss that great is, I've got to do something. I've had a great loss. I need to have great compensation. Right? That's the, that's the instinct. And it's very understandable, right? I lost the temple. I'm going to rebuild the temple. They're in no position to do that. But, but you can understand emotionally and personally why they want to. And Jeremiah says something which is remarkable in the 29th chapter. He says the opposite. He says to them, you've experienced a great loss. The way forward is to be faithful in small things. Because by being faithful in small things in your own local context... God will build the future and the hope that he has for you. So here's what he says at a practical level in chapter 29 in the midst of that verse I quoted to you. Build houses, get married, raise faithful children. I mean, talk about dinky. Hey, what do you mean? We lost our temple. I mean, this is terrible. You, You think about that story. When they return, which is, if you know the history, 70 years later, It is only because of the faith of those parents and those marriages to those children that they had a faith to return with. See, it only seems little to us because we're looking at it from our perspective. But to God, faithfulness in little things is never a little thing. But in a time of judgment and exile, it's absolutely crucial. And that is where I find hope. I find hope in the individual ways in which in a time of great chaos... Uh, people are seeking to be faithful and creative and courageous uh, for the sake of the gospel in small good things. And that is enormously encouraging. When I talk to vestries, I sometimes do something fairly mean, which is I, I start a sentence and then I don't end it and I ask them to fill it in. And the sentence is this, the most important thing I can do as a vestry member of this parish is blank. I love doing this. And you get every question you know, every answer, uh, be, uh, be a good faithful steward, right? Uh, go to worship on Sunday, all this kind of stuff. And the, the, I almost never get the answer that I'm seeking, which is this, to be faithful to Christ in my own life and to grow in Christ myself. That is to say, the most important thing for a vestry member to do is to be alive in their own faith and be growing in their own faith because that is what they bring everywhere, no matter where they are. And you would be amazed at how many people in times of crisis and exile get dislodged from the absolute priorities. That's why marriages crack up. That's why people lose their faith. That's why people lose their way. I have a lot of friends who, who are going through those things right now and it makes me very sad. But I, I tell people all the time, pay attention to your marriage. <laughs> Pay attention to your own prayer life. And what I see is individuals and parishes in unlikely places, in unlikely ways, 
being faithful. And all I can tell you is, I have no idea how, but I believe that the future of Anglicanism in North America, out of this current apparent chaos, is going to come from those acts of faithfulness and the faith that comes with it as it's passed forward. And, I, and, and the hard part is, I'm not going to be able to control what that looks like. 